Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Every now and again in life, if you're really blessed, you meet a great leader, a leader whose life and whose skills in their job inspire you. Hello, I'm Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. Today, I have just such a leader with me who has been a friend, a colleague, and a co-laborer in this wonderful thing called leadership and life. I'm with Dr. Steve Green. He's the executive publisher at Strang Communications, all of the magazine periodical division aspect of, uh, of the great Charisma Media Corporation is under him and formerly was with me at or Roberts University. Dr. Green, it's great to have you on the Leader's Notebook. Dr. Ellen, it's such an honor to be on the Leader's Notebook. I've read your column for years and have followed you uh, really before you were the boss. Before you were the president of ORU, I knew of you and had read you. And uh, now I, I had the privilege of experiencing your leadership and learning so much from you. And uh, just an honor to be with you, sir. Well, we learn from each other, and the honor is mutual. I remember our first encounter. <laughs> I was pretty new as the president at Oral Roberts University, and we were having to replace the dean of the business college. Yes. So the provost of the university and the academic dean were both in my office. They said, we have a candidate we want to interview. And they brought you in, and we interviewed you, and I looked at your elaborate resume. I mean, just so much practical experience and uh, experience in leadership and executive leadership at a high level in, in the media industry and television, radio particularly. And so I was so impressed. And that when you stepped out of the room, they turned to me and said, what do you think we ought to do? I said, well, you can hire him or I can hire him. How do you want to do this? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we were so delighted. <laughs> I remember that story. Well, I was delighted too. Oh, you took over the business college and you just hit it over the fence. It was great. The fundraising you did, the development, the shark tank you built. It, it was great. Did you enjoy your time as the dean of the business college? I miss it so much, Doc. You, you just wouldn't know. I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, I was afraid of you <laughs> and, and in a way that, you know, we're not that far apart in age. And yet, when you walked into that room and you addressed the faculty for the first time, and I was sitting there as your newly hired dean, and I heard you open your comments with, now, now listen, folks, I got to tell you like it is, uh, you're going to have to do more with less. You know, uh, I, I forget the expression you said, more, more hay, less straw. I don't know how you said it. You got to tell us. <laughs> that sounds more biblical. <laughs> but you made it real clear. We still got to sell a lot of shoes. You just don't have as many salesmen, so go get it done. I'll remember it. And that I felt like I was back in Wall Street uh, with NBC being told, like, go sell more stuff with less programs. Well, uh, I've I approached the academic world as business. And yes, you did. that's why you, I think you and I connected, uh, is that you, you saw the business aspect. Certainly, you were a great teacher, and I know that you had uh, a tremendous interaction with the students as well as yes. your faculty in the business college. But I think, uh, I think that you and I were on the same wavelength in terms of running a university in a business-like way. Yes, sir. And, you know, we, we started that way. Very, I have very similar uh, 
early behaviors that you did. You know, you had a lot of people scratching their heads because the first thing you did was laid off a lot of staff and planted flowers. And there are a lot of folks that didn't get that, Dr. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they didn't understand how you beautified the campus while you were uh, sending people home because we were fat. Our, our payroll was just fat for the size of university we were and what we could afford. I, I had a similar strategy in the College of Business. I wanted to brand us first. And so we put in a, a digital ticker tape. We put in a world-class boardroom that we called the Shark. It became called the Shark Tank because we taught a lot of entrepreneurship, did some crazy, great business things in there. But we did other things, Dr. Rutland. We went first and had some small wins. We went to conferences and won some case study competitions. We went to SIFE enterprise competitions, and we became nationally ranked and even as high as the top four in the country uh, for little ORU. And we got known over our five years together, four or five years together, you and I, we got known for having a, a business school. Oh, one other thing, we started uh, scoring real high on the national field test. So what all that meant was Fortune 500 companies would come to ORU and recruit our students. We placed college students in year one of our time together in Fortune 500 companies. And so that leadership wasn't come, didn't come by changing faculty. We had great faculty. We were just a well-kept secret. So we had to get out into the marketplace, into the kingdom marketplace, Fortune 500 companies, put our students in front of them. You know, we had first-time passes in a CPA exam at a record that no other universities were, were cranking out. We'd have uh, 14 students take the test, 14 students passed it, and were CPAs. That's just unheard of. You did that also over the nursing program. They were getting their degrees quickly. So we started doing the right things. It is unheard of. I mean, and I remember that uh, that program, that that uh, competition that you that your students took part in, where they had to make a presentation. What was that called, Dr. Green? Yes. Students in Free Enterprise then, it became called Enactus Now. But it was a, a free enterprise business. It was all for entrepreneurship. And we did projects and then... The competition was judged by this phrase, who helped the most people the most? And uh, we had a pretty, you've seen it, and the trustees at that time saw those presentations. You came and watched in the in the room, and you developed this immediate recognition that, oh, you had some fine college students. It was well done, and we were competing nationally. We were competing with other Christian schools or other small UCLA. privates. We were competing with UCLA <laughs> and the University of Michigan. We beat Florida, Georgia, LSU. They, the, None of them were doing what we were doing. First of all, because we had students who were called to help people. We had a little secret weapon. Mm. You know, our our natural resources were designed to go out into the marketplace and help people. And some of these traditional business schools weren't really trained in helping people. That's a good point, which in a way leads me to another thing I want to ask you about, and uh, and that is your book, Love Leads. That um, in the In the university world, you were known as a as a real business practitioner. You were a businessman who came into the university world. Yes, but I was also an academic. Yes, you had a past in the academic. Yes. However, I overlooked that when I hired you. I know. I appreciate that, sir. Thanks for giving me a chance. <laughs> I was after that practical business leadership. Yes, sir. But in the business world, a book like Love Leads may not resonate. So oh my. how do you put together, how do you put together the concept 
of love leadership and hard-nosed business leadership. How did you put those together in the same philosophy and in the same book? That's a great question. Let me tell you, the book doesn't resonate with pastors either because most pastors, like business owners, feel like, well, I don't have any trouble loving my people. You know, I've got a title. My, my title on the book is crossed out the word strength because we've had this, oh, ever since Frederick Taylor in the Industrial Revolution, thinking that we got to be tough and we got to threaten jobs and we got to say, if you can't do it, I'll get somebody that can. And that's strength leadership, you know, just bang the desk and command performance. Where we're not a whole lot different as love leaders. We just believe that first love, like I'm very tough on standards, but uh, reasonable, even softer on people. Tough on standards, soft on people. I love people, mm. but meet my standards. Meet our standards. These are the rules. This is what we do. You're going to be held accountable. Is that okay? Because accountability, I'm pretty sure that on the last days, there's going to be an opportunity for me to, to become accountable for every word I've spoken here on earth. And for all my actions, there will be an accountability meeting. And so accountability is a kingdom principle. It's a godly principle. So to lead with love uh, means we correct when we need to. You know, we, we mostly praise. We praise in public. We correct in private, which is very traditional thinking. It's One Minute Manager. It's a good book. It's in there. But I took it to an extreme of focusing on every chapter has a different Bible story of a Bible leader who led with love. And I tried to show how their love led the people they led back in Bible times. It's a terrific book. It's a small book, a quick read. But I, I loved it. I loved the principles in it. And I love the, the, uh, the practical use of examples in it. You know, I remember uh, um, one of my favorite quotes is from the late Philip Crosby saying, quality is meeting expectations. Yes. And I've based a huge amount of my understanding of quality management on that, on that one quote. But the issue is that doesn't mean anything if you don't hold anybody accountable based on the expectations. So true. Love, love doesn't just mean letting everybody do whatever they want to, right? Right. Full of grace. Oh, that's okay. You didn't make your budget. We'll go try harder. I, I'm not that kind of love leader. <laughs> we make our numbers. You know, soft on people, help them, train them better, get them ready, but then hold them accountable. I use the analogy, Dr. Rutland, of getting on an airplane and uh, paying for a ticket to go to San Francisco. And a pilot stops in Utah and says, well, I think I'm tired. I'm going to land the plane here. Y'all figure out how to get to San Francisco. I've got you to Salt hmm. Lake. I'm done. You know, that pilot's job, we have an agreement that we're going to land in San Francisco. I have a ticket that says that's where I'm going. So I use the analogy in leadership often, land the plane. We have expectation to get to where we're going, so land the plane. That's great. And it, that there's nothing mean about that. No. It's just a very clear expectation. I, I ordered a steak. I don't want chicken. That's great. That's great. I think the equal and opposite errors, on the one hand, you have the people who think love means all this squishy grace. Mm -mm. And on the other hand, people who think that uh, tough leadership means banging your shoe on the table like Khrushchev. No. And, and I think the way you put it together in that book and the way you put it together in your own personal leadership has been a, has been a great, uh, great, great blessing to me, and I appreciate it. I want to ask you a career question. There are people that are listening to the podcast, and they're considering a, a career change. I, know, I don't know who, but there's somebody listening. Sure. They've been doing one thing. 
you have done remarkably different things, as as in a sense I have too. Yes, you have. So you were you were in the academic world in the academy. You were the uh, executive vice president for what was it, nineteen television stations, and all. Yes. But then back into the academic world, and now as as the publisher at Strang Communications and Charisma Media. Oh, you forgot how you met me. I was with Camille's Sidewalk Cafe. That's that, right. That that's fast, right. That uh, food system. I met you. Uh, in fact, I had met uh, Richard Roberts at Camille's, and he said, you know, you ought to come over and teach for me. And I had that adjunct here before I met you, and I just taught adjunct. I remember that. But, you know, I met him because I was in the restaurant business managing three – not managing, I was a chief operating officer of the company – so I had a real strong, long career in food. Well, so is that crazy? So that even makes my question more important than how how does somebody make that leap from from uh, chief operating officer of a of a restaurant chain, television stations, uh, the academy, now a publishing industry? How, what what kind of skill says does it take to to cross all those boundaries and leap those fences and do those different things? You know, I've done a lot of interviews about my book. I've never been asked that question. No one's ever picked up on it. And I don't talk about it much because it makes me look like a ne'er-do-well jumping around from here to there. But <laughs> And there's probably some truth to that. But I, I've, I've had successes when I've been. But, you know, there's a common ground ingredient in all of these jobs. I was where the Lord wanted me. That one of the things you know that while I was teaching at ORU, the Lord put me into a church, that we planted a church by accident. We were teaching a Sunday school class that led to a church, and I turned around twice. And for 10 years, I pastored a church while I was in uh, in Tulsa. And what I remember about the whole experience is everything led to something else. And as I sit here today, every single stop I made along the way contributed and you know the quote, to a time such as this, it all added up to having the experiences that were going to be needed for what God had planned for me for the future. So the common ground, and, and here's a, a little side story that I'll tell as quickly as I can. I had an opportunity to go to Africa and minister while I was at ORU. I went in for a couple of weeks, and, and my wife worked in a cholera camp and did nursing. We worked in homes. My main thing was to teach entrepreneurship in all oh, that great metropolis called uh, Zimbabwe, who <laughs> was having a little trouble uh, with money and financial exchange where a billion dollars of money wouldn't buy you a banana because of their runaway inflation and other problems like government taking your money. But while I was there, I said, this is what I want to do. This is my Africa. And I got back to Tulsa that night. I had a chamber meeting, a chamber of conference, a chamber of commerce banquet and I got some kind of award and stuff and and I thought, man, I've got to get out of business and get back into the church. And it was the next day when someone called me that owned a restaurant in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I won't tell his name, but he owned three or four restaurants and he said, Green, I gotta tell you something. He said, I am your Africa. That you can't leave me. I need you to help me with the story. Just Help me to get profitable. It's my home is on the line here. I've got to make these restaurants. Now, who else understands the presence of the Lord to know that he'll send his people, whatever their calling is. If it's a worship leader, he'll send me into a church where they need a worship leader. He sent me into a food chain that needed someone that could fix their problems. And by the grace of God and by his giftings, we were able to help them and get people back on their, their feet. 
And then when it was time for that season to close and that door began to close, I met you and and was prepared in a way. Guess the, the stories I could tell students. I wasn't some 23-year-old that had a textbook and a story about how I learned in school. You know, now I'm pushing 60, 55 when I came to ORU, and I had a lot of stories to tell of practical experience plus academic preparation. And they love that. The kids loved you, and they loved that practical experience, that ability to, for you to translate your personal experiences into transferable concepts that they yes. could receive and take hold of and put to work in their own lives. Yes, sir. You know, uh, I heard your joke about uh, being a ne'er-do-well, that you kept moving from, career, from uh, industry to industry because you weren't succeeding in, anywhere. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is you succeeded everywhere. Yes, and sir. that's that's what I keep trying to get to. How does what is the skill set that makes a guy successful in the food industry, successful in the publishing industry, successful in in formal education, successful in all these different things? Mm. There, there's some people that can they work at a paper mill their whole lives. They're good at it, but that's all they can do. But but what is that thing? Is it is it flexibility? What's that thing that makes uh, a leader able to to jump those fences and succeed in all those different fields. You're really making my head hurt. This is a hard question, <laughs> but I've I've got an answer. I think it's in the book, and and I believe it because Jesus said the keys of the kingdom are about relationships. So I believe in every place, and I think you saw it where you were my boss. You've seen it since since we've been friends and we've worked together, and I love you so much and your family. And who you are and what you do for global servants has always really been close to my heart because of you and who you are. But I think the key is, and the key to your success, is when we shake a hand and we give our word that comes with integrity, the integrity to do what we say we're going to do, and that builds relationships. So I think the word is to continue to build relationships wherever I'm planted. I want to make sure that my hand means something and that that uh, I do what I say I'm going to do, and that builds relationships. That's great. I, I I see your point that if you have a basic concepts of business and leadership, sure. If you can overlay that with with the um, emotional intelligence and the relational intelligence to make that work, you that'll that'll work whether you're working in a toilet paper factory or or in a or or in a, a high rise rental unit because those that's what transfers is relationship isn't that right you and i yes sir you and i have worked with people that were technically qualified very competent they could do stuff mm -hmm. but who wanted to be around them yes you know that they just had that they didn't have the emotional skills or Whatever it is that God gives us, the presence of the Lord in our heart, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in me and dwells in you. That person standing with the power of the Holy Spirit in front of someone, that makes the difference. Let us uh, let me zero in for a minute on uh, on the, the industry you're working in now. So yes, sir. Uh, you're the publisher and executive vice president at, a, at really one of the premier Christian publishing companies in, in the world. Uh, Strain Communications, what it was called, I think it's Charisma Media. Uh, and all of those periodicals are under you, all of the online. It's a, it's a wide portfolio. And now you're not at Camille's restaurants. Now you're yes, not sir. overseeing 19 television stations. Yes, sir. So how do you make, how do you make the, um, 
the connection between ministry. I mean, Charisma Magazine, there are people, thousands of people who pick that up every month to read Charisma Magazine. So at that point, it's ministry. Absolutely. At that point, it's ministry to them. Yes. But when you're trying to make it profitable, that's business. Yes, it is. So how do you put those together? You know, it's what we, the life I've lived where I've been one foot in ministry, one foot in business as a restaurant owner, as a, as a teacher, as someone who worked in the ad agency world and did all these things, I still was who I am, you know, and that's the, a man of God, I hope. I hope I can make that claim. But being someone that uh, is observed as someone who's been with Christ and that I've, I've got something to offer besides my business skills, I want, I want to bring the Lord into that business. So I think that's what we do here, only... I'm trying to bring the business into the ministry. It's a it's a little bit of a flip, mm, but mm. You know, uh, Steve Strang says this all the time. Steve and Joy, that we're a hundred percent ministry and we're one hundred percent business. Now you and I know that math doesn't work, but I don't care. It works in the kingdom. Mm. That we're all of what we need to be. We're a for profit company, but we're a for serve you company too. And we write things that answer the question: How then shall I live? So it's just been a blessing. I had no idea why God was sending me here. Uh, you know, you were very instrumental in making it happen. You you saw the connection somehow in your wisdom that that I that I would be able to do what needed to be done here. So you already knew the answer that I would succeed here because God was in it. Well, I did know. And uh, when uh, Steve Strang, um, who was a student at my leadership institute, he told me that he needed a new publisher and executive vice president. He said, I just don't know who in the world to get. I said, I know a guy. I said, if you can get him. And I said, I'll make the initial call. He's the dean of the business college at Oral Roberts University. But I said, I don't know if we can get him away from there. But if we can, he's the guy that can make it go because I just felt your range of experience and your depth of life would be exactly what that business ministry, magazine, publishing, that yes. conglomerate yes. thing that thing. was that. I just knew you were the guy to make that work. And and I, I know Steve has told me over and over again uh, that uh, the best advice I ever gave him was to hire Steve Green. So I like hearing that. Well, I'm blessed to hear it and humbled as well. But, you know, I do one other thing, and it's a secret for any leader listening that you need. I hope you're known for your training of your staff. So you won't be surprised to know that our boardroom is busy about every day with training going on. I do a lot of classes. I've taught marketing. I've taught leadership. I've named the class that would be considered business, you know, reading a P&L in, in our rooms. And I've got department head classes. I've got marketing classes. We've got writing classes. And, you know, we have other people teaching too because I can't do it all. But at the same time, I know that education is so important. Why would I leave it in, in a university level and not bring it into the, into the corporate world? I believe that the kingdom mm -hmm. of God is all about teaching that we're, we're knowledge workers, doc. You and I, what we have to offer someone is what we learned, what we know, and what we can share. And I think you're a knowledge worker. Look at what you're doing now. This is knowledge work. Underneath all that uh, businessman, minister, everything else, there's actually underneath there's a business teacher. <laughs> yes, and, uh, and he just gets out every now and again. That's great, Steve. I'm glad to hear it. Yes, sir. I knew you'd be proud of that because you're an academic. You cared about I watched you. 
you were funny. The students loved you. What a president you were and are. You know, to me, you're always a president, just like pastors are always pastors to me. Well, thank you. But I saw how you moved those kids. So you're you're a teacher as well. You're one of the best communicator teachers I know. I don't know anybody better. I'll put it that way. And I'm not just uh, asking for a raise here, boss. <laughs> I, I'm your colleague. We're friends, and I love you. But I, I want to tell you, I saw a teacher in you. In fact, I said in one of your classes when you talked on David, it was an amazing class. And well, thank you. later you wrote a great book about it. So I was blessed. I already knew the book, bought it anyway, bought three copies of it. <laughs> well, I bought more of other of your books though. Good. I, I think you should buy a thousand. Well, I'm not, not led to do that yet, sir, but I'll get right on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me go back to that educator part of it. Okay. Um, there are, there are people listening, also listening. I never know who is listening to a podcast. You have, we have thousands and thousands, as you you have thousands on yours. Yes, your sir. podcast is much bigger than mine, your podcast audience. You're climbing, though. You're growing fast. We are growing, and I appreciate the platform that you've given us on it. But surely, listening on here, there are young people. Yes. And suppose you could say to them, here's one thing I'd like to give you at the early end, at the starting end. Uh, you're not as old as I am, Dr. Green, but we're both closer to the finish line than we are to the starting gun. Yes. So look back over your shoulder at those guys that are lining up at the starting gun, and what what advice, what counsel would you give them as you start the race of life and business and leadership? Mm. Here's something I would urge you to do. Good question. I, I didn't get any of these questions in advance, so you're, you're catching me just right in, the, in my wheelhouse. And, and I have a, a very strong answer for this question because I get asked by young leaders often. So I'm going to answer the question as it would relate to a young leader, a would-be leader. And I want to say, first, get competent. It's step one. You know, we, we've got an overall capability funnel. And inside of that funnel, there's got to, it's got to start with capabilities. Get good at what you say you do. If you're a singer, sing good. If you play piano, play piano well. If you can sell hamburgers, then make those hamburgers and sell them well. Get real competent. Add to that an equal portion of character. So it's capability and character. Most people start with, uh, at least that we met at ORU, good, strong character. And they had to learn that character wasn't enough. And people with strong capabilities have to learn that capabilities aren't enough, that, that competency is not enough. So we want that entire capacity to grow. Capacity grows. In both of those areas, I want capacity for uh, more competency, and I want my capacity to grow. In other words, I don't want to hit the ceiling too soon. Mm. Let that ceiling keep expanding. Mm. So we do that with training and work and coaching and mentoring, like you've mentored so many in your life. It's got to start with stock. It has to start with competency. That's great. And with an equal portion of character. You put those two together, and they grow and you move that ceiling as you grow, uh, you're going to have a fine career. That's a that's a great answer. I I think it's so practical. Before you try to do anything else, get good at what you do. I really like that. <laughs> that's great. Yes, sir. Uh, as you look back over your career, Doctor Green, uh, I, I, here's a question to expose <laughs> something, and you may not want to be too exposed on this, but okay. was there ever a moment where where you thought to yourself, you you moved into a new job or a new position or something, and your first feeling, your first emotion was, 
I've stepped in a hole that's over my head. The first, you thought, oh no, this time I've messed it up. I can't do this one. Where you were intimidated by the by the new job or the new thing. Have you ever had that? Yes, I have. Honestly, I was a little younger. Um, I felt it when I wanted to play in the big leagues. And you know, I was living in Springfield and was consulting with TV stations. And they asked me to move to San Francisco and manage the San Francisco duopoly. So there was a big TV station, an NBC station across the bay in San Francisco, and an ABC station in uh, San Jose. So it was two big stations plus a third one that was a WB. And I was given the entire market and a budget like I've never seen before, the kind of numbers that you know Wall Street watches. We were the flagship station that wagged the entire group. As that station went, the group went. Mm. And I, you know, I've got bravado. You've known me enough. It's not ego as much as it is God confidence. I really felt like if God sent me here, we had to sell another house, move again, and move all the way out to San Francisco. And it was also a market that's very different in the United States. That's a very different marketplace than I'm used to. But it wasn't even local. That was part of the problem. It was a very national TV station. It's the number four market in the country. It's great big. And I went, I think, from the minor leagues to the major leagues, and they were throwing fastballs and curveballs and balls I've never been able to identify. And there was a time in which uh, I was there oh, a couple of years, and there was a time at which I realized that I should have had 10, 20 years in the TV business I don't know why they put me here. And it was because I was a teacher and I was succeeding in all the other stations. But all the other stations were market sizes like Buffalo or Lansing, Michigan, Peoria, Illinois. You know, market sizes I knew about mm. and that, that I could go in and do local. Well, here I go to San Francisco and there is no local. You want to get on our TV station? You need $50,000 the first month just to get even on the air. It's just commercials were expensive. Our talent was expensive. Uh, the kind of numbers were huge. And so I went from single-A ball to the major league, and I and I met the World Series champion uh, throwing fastballs at me. Wow. So I spent every single day at my desk. I, I remember eating Thanksgiving dinner at my desk. Wow. Uh, I, ate, I had Christmas at my desk every day because I was over my head. I grew. I got better at it. When I left, I had made the budget. But I still don't feel like I did it at any time. I think I was just blessed by the Lord. I think he saw a poor guy over his head that he gave favor to. That's the only time in my life I felt the way you've just asked me, where I, I think I was, I jumped into my level of, how about this? I'll be kind to me and say my level of inexperience. It was so big. And uh, I got there, made the number. And uh, wanted to get out quick because I didn't want to take another chance. I had a couple of years of it, and it was so much pressure. I aged so much in that job and, you know, had a big home, never saw it. And uh, drove a lot of miles. You know, just everything that could go against the guy. Mm. I let, I felt like I was leading okay. But when I was trying to demonstrate confidence to those people that had lived in major market their entire life, they uh they looked down their eyebrows at me a few times like do you have this do you, are are we okay are you going to get us there and I said, yes I think we'll get there <laughs> but Doc I learned so much from that I, I did and I felt when I came here that I was fine I was going to be fine day one I knew I was in the right place I was okay 
was not promoted to my level of incompetency. Everything in life prepares you. You do the job you have. One does the job one has. You try to achieve there, but every place is preparing you for the next place. Yes. And and at some point, that accumulated knowledge and experience and ability oh, and confidence. You, I'm not talking about arrogance, but a sense of confidence. Yes. Um, there's a difference between a kid who comes out of college and somebody who's a nine-year pro quarterback playing for the Dallas Cowboys. There's a difference. I don't care how talented that college graduate is. Those years of playing backup quarterback or trying to make it or trying to stay in the pros, they build you, they create you. And I I just always say to young people, don't be afraid of a hole that's over your head. Step in, do it. You'll learn it. Go in the deep end and figure it out. But but we we are facing a generation here, Dr. Green. I, I tell you, they're... They're too easily intimidated and frightened by by opportunities and challenges that that are serious. They are intimidating. I I don't make light of that. But every job I ever had intimidated me <laughs> because they got participation trophies all their life. They they never had to win, Doc. They just participated and got a trophy. Well, Maybe. my my urging to them is come on, step up to the plate. Yes. you're facing. You're facing, go on, play, play ball, hit it hard, give it everything you've got. Give God a chance. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? They Yes. Let the Lord show you. <laughs> they can fire you, but they can't eat you. That's what I said. That's say. right. <laughs> That's right. I wasn't fired. No, you you succeeded there. I did that before I came to ORU. And, you know, when I quit, I actually went back to consulting, and that's how I ended up ultimately, you know, I was consulting with this food chain. And uh, they asked me to come on as COO. I said, okay, this is another thing that God wants me to do. I would never have met you had I not done that. And I would never have been at ORU. So I know it was a God path. And think about what I was able to tell those students of mine. Absolutely. Those precious little children, young people that you used to call other names. <laughs> I loved how you talked about them. But you, you loved them. I did but love them. You know what? I couldn't have told those stories without that experience in San Francisco. It changed my life. Absolutely. I didn't think for the better at the time I was living it, but I see it now. Absolutely. I always say that your life makes more sense in the rearview mirror than it does out the windshield. <laughs> you, you you suddenly look in the rearview mirror and you think, wow, I now I, now I get it. That's why I went there. Yes. That's why I faced that. Yes. And it all starts to add oh. up. <laughs> I'm getting wiser as I look back. Well, Dr. Green, you've given me a lot of time here, and I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me that you join us on the Leader's Notebook. I I want to close with a question I like to ask people I'm interviewing, and that is this. If you had, I'm not talking about regrets, but if you had one thing you could do differently, if you look back on your life and you could speak to Steve Green at 28, if you could do one thing differently, change one decision, what, what would it be? Okay, you, you're not going to like this, probably. But I would have went to seminary instead of my PhD program. I, I have always felt like if I could do it over again, I'd want to be trained to really know what's going on and to be able to pastor and spend my life at that. Because I think ultimately I was called to pastor because I did it 10 years. And every day I felt like if I just would have had that formal training, because I say that to young people, young academics that want to teach, you've got to go to grad school. 
You've got to get that union card. You've got to get your master's and PhD. I wanted my master's and D-men so badly while I was at ORU teaching, and I just felt like I wanted to be that guy. But I really believe God wanted me. Now, that's why I said I don't think you'd like it, because I believe God wanted me to minister in the marketplace and not in the church. So, But that's what I would have done different at the time, maybe, if I could have. I'm so glad that you couldn't speak to that young guy and make him change that decision. (laughs) You've lived your life as you should have. You've succeeded in business. You've brought to business uh, uh, the proof, according to your book, and I want to recommend to everybody that you get this book, uh, that you've, you've proved love leads. Dr. Green, how can anybody get your book, and how can they get onto your podcast? Hey, the best way with the book is loveleadsbook.com. There's a nice uh, video there and a training series and free stuff and things like that. The book is available at low cost on Amazon. Uh, You could get it at at Charisma. Uh, Just whatever way is comfortable. At this point, we just really love to get this book in more hands, more pastors' hands. That If you lead in any kind of nonprofit church organization, this book will really speak to you. It works certainly in the marketplace, but I know that folks in ministry will do more with it. I think it'll really help you. There's a lot of scripture in it. It's, it's filled with good Bible stories and a lot of very, I think, a lot of strong business principles. And uh, as far as getting me on the podcast, go to cpnshows.com, C-P nshows.com. Look for Green Lines. And I also have a website called greenlines.com. And my name is spelled G-R-E-E-N-E. So it's greenlines, one word, dot com. There's lots of goodies there, newsletters, and and my book's there too. You can find other things if you want to. I recommend it highly and without any reservation. Get on Green Lines, get the book, and enjoy the, the fruit of a life well-lived and leadership well done. Thank you. Congratulations on all of it, Dr. Green. Thank you, Pastor and Dr. Rutland. Thank you very much for joining us on this uh, broadcast of uh, The Leader's Notebook. This has been my interview with Dr. Steve Green, and I'm Mark Rutland. God bless you. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.